Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to my podcast on the shoulders of giants. If you are enjoying listening to these episodes, please do me a favor and rate the show and write a review in iTunes and the Play Store. It will help get the word out, and apparently, people trust the comments and reviews of complete strangers. You can also write me with feedback and comments at charlesrotanera at hotmail.com or go to my website at www.tcrutanira.com. That's T for Tino Tender, C for Charles, R-U-T-A-N-H-I-R-A.com. Thanks, and now on with the show. I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is the podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. My guest today started a website development business out of his Middlebury College dorm in 1999. Little did he know that within a few short years, he would be running a thriving web development and internet marketing company. Ted Adler is the founder and president of Union Street Media, and he also sits on the board of Spectrum Youth and Family Services, the Vermont Public Radio, and the Greater Burlington Industrial Corporation. Ted, welcome to my show. Hey, thanks, Charles. Um, so I'm curious, uh, what was your upbringing like? Um, well, see, I'm the oldest of six kids, uh, and uh, so that in itself was pretty unique. There certainly were not a lot of families um, today that have six children, and certainly back then we were kind of an anomaly. Um, and I'd say that, you know, sort of where kind of the entrepreneurial bug came from me was really sort of innate. Like, I didn't know what an entrepreneur was um, until, uh, like, I was probably, you know, I don't know, seven or eight years old, and my father <laughs> sort of said to me, "said You're you're an entrepreneur," and uh, and all of that came about because um, as a little kid, I used to really love collecting baseball cards, um, and uh, my parents basically were not particularly interested in funding my baseball card collection, and as a result, they um, said that if you wanted to get cards, you had to go out and earn the money. So I launched a lemonade stand um, right at the corner, um, right by the house that I grew up in, in Connecticut, and started employing my brothers and sisters. And uh, after a couple days of um, trashing the kitchen, my mother decided to shut the whole thing down. And my father, who um, also is an entrepreneur, who started his own company and whose family, um, whose father uh, was in a family business as well, um, uh, the Furrier industry way back when uh, ran a two or three person operation um, which included his mother as well 
uh, sort of said, no, this is this, this is something. There's something here, right? Um, and so we're going to nurture and cultivate this. And so my dad basically said, all right, we're going to incorporate um, Adler Family Enterprises. And he sent us upstairs, and we all had to go get two dollars out of our piggy bank. And he came down and he gave us all a stock certificate that he wrote <laughs> in his um, rather messy handwriting for ten shares in Adler Family Enterprises. Um, and so uh, basically, he then sat down with us and he sort of plotted out like how much the lemonade cost and um, then every time there was a transaction, uh, you got paid as a manager um, and as a employee of the uh, lemonade stand, right? So for each deal that we would do, every time somebody bought a lemonade, I was a manager. I got two and a half cents. The, uh, my brothers would get one and a half cents. Uh, we then had to deduct our expenses, um, our lemonade expenses, against the uh, income we collected, uh, and which included tips. And at the end of the day, um, whatever was left was uh, profit, and it got paid out to all the shareholders as dividends. Wow. So within a couple of weeks, um, uh, one of my brothers figured that he could just uh, go hang out on the swing set and still collect his dividend check, and I decided that I wanted to buy him out. Um, and my <laughs> to my dad, and I said, I want to buy his shares, and my father would b block the trade. Um, so... So yeah, uh, but anyway, so for that first summer, we sold a lot of lemonade, and that's how I uh, how I sort of financed my baseball card collection, and I guess kind of how the whole um, entrepreneurship thing started for me. Oh, that that's just brilliant! I I, I love that story, and um, I, I like the way that your father was uh, sort of acting as the the FCC, right? Yeah, the yeah, FCC. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's just brilliant. Um, from the lemonade stand, uh, then it seems like your siblings were uh, also entrepreneurial, and uh, it's it's sort of been ingrained in you guys. Uh, do you think that uh, that behavior is uh, also biological, or do you think without that uh, encouragement that you got from your dad as well as your uncle, you would have maybe just turned out a little differently? Um, huh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've never really thought about entrepreneurship as being necessarily biological. I would say it's probably, like, strongly cultural. Um, and there's a guy named Marcus Whitney who I saw speak in Denver last year who's a really fascinating entrepreneur. Um, he is uh, does not come from a traditional entrepreneurial background, um, was raised by a single mother, um, and uh, he's, you know, probably uh, six foot four, has uh, you know, dreads down to the middle of his back. Um, and he ended up in, like, you know, creating, like, actually several companies in the Nashville area and has now launched a company called the Unlikely Company, which actually helps target and identify non-traditional entrepreneurs. And when he sort of tells his story, and I would definitely recommend checking out his website um, and, and, and learning more about him, but when he tells his story, he said that, he didn't know at the time that he actually had had an entrepreneurial role model, but if I remember correctly, he said that in high school, um, his mother had uh, basically like hired a bunch of friends and, and, and set up, I believe it was like a hair salon or something like that, right? And so when he, in his early 20s, um, was living in an efficiency with his uh, wife and son at age 21 and working a bunch of restaurant jobs, he essentially like taught himself how to code. And, and he went on to become CTO at, um, you know, several companies and now has launch companies. 
And his sort of theory on entrepreneurship was that what you really need is to have an entrepreneurial role model. And so, like, you know, my father started his company when um, uh, I was seven years old, six years old. Yeah, he had, there was four of us. Um, he quit his job and <laughs> launched a business. Um, and he, I remember specifically because he, he had a week off between his old job and his new job. And he took us on, they took us on vacation down to uh, Disney World um, in April and took us out of school to go on that vacation, which was probably, by the way, about the only time my parents ever took me out of school. And <laughs> up. So it was definitely kind of like a demarcation um, uh, in, in my life. Um, and so I would say that like what entrepreneurship really revolves around is having a role model and access to mentorship. Uh, certainly like, you know, I'd say that um, there's probably certain people, if you were to look at kind of um, how their, you know, sort of their element and, you know, their risk tolerance and all that kind of stuff, maybe there is some component of it that's innate, but I think a lot of it really comes down to knowing a friend or family member who created or started their own business. I see. Do you think that there, there needs to be an element of success in that role model? Because I'm wondering if your dad had done this and maybe he wasn't successful, that might have deterred you rather than encouraged you. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly, like, I think it's obviously you're much more probably likely to become an entrepreneur if you've seen it modeled successfully, um, uh, because I guess you're probably, your perception of what the risk is, is lower. Um, but, you know, I'd say that, like, one of the things, like, when I sort of started this company, my kind of take was, I was 22 years old, or actually, I guess, yeah, 22. And so I figured, you know what, I'm going to give this thing a couple years, and if it doesn't work out, I'll be 24, 25, 26 years old, and I will, like, have a great story, and I'll go to business school, right? So I sort of mapped out my worst-case scenario, and I looked at it, and I said, I accept that outcome as reality, right? And one of the things that's great about America um, is that we love entrepreneurs, and we also accept failure. Right, and we like reward failure. Better to have tried and not to succeed than like not to have tried at all, right? Absolutely. And so I think that um, culturally, like the United States is one of the best places to um, uh, start a company because of the sort of American culture around like innovation and um, uh, sort of uh, you know trying something out. And I think there are other parts of the world where that level of like, you know, um, creativity and risk is not necessarily as rewarded. And certainly if it results in failure, um, that failure is looked down upon and punished. And I think in America, it's like if you try it and you fail, then you can just try again. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and, and it's got, it's like culturally like very, it's accepted and rewarded here in a really different way. Um, so I think certainly there is the aspect of having seen somebody be a successful entrepreneur um, but I also think that um, like it's really larger than, than than just that yeah yeah that resonates a lot with me and uh, one of the reasons I'm actually doing this podcast is because of the fact that I have received a lot of encouragement that hey so what if you fail you know um, and it's almost encouraging you to embrace failure rather than necessarily just to be successful which is important but obviously not always going to happen. So it raises an interesting question for me in that I look at um, 
how your father and your uncle inc- recognize this talent. And yet, when we look at our education system, you went through college, you did a BA in international politics and economics, and doesn't look like the plan was to start and run your own business there. But all the way through college, I wonder how you know you went through four years of college without somebody else of the people that are charged with educating us recognizing and then nurturing that talent you know what could we do differently sure yeah i mean i think like so i would say like kind of all along i was doing entrepreneurial things in college um i i was the rep for like mad river glen at middlebury college and so i used to sell passes to the students um to other students and as a result like i got a free season pass right um, then, uh, and that was great because it was a place that I was passionate about and I loved to advocate for, and so it was easy to sell. Um, the, um, uh, the subsequently, like, I would, <laughs> one year I got, like, all of the fridges and futons, like, left over from the seniors and put it in storage for the summer and then turned around and sold it to the freshmen. Um, so, <laughs> that's brilliant. I did that. Uh, you know, and then the, um, you know, the, in terms of, like, how that, like, you know, sort of specifically, like, with Middlebury College, um, you know, there was one person at Middlebury who um, is still involved in the community, so I'll, I'll refrain from sharing their name specifically, but they were in a position um, the, of influence on campus when I was uh, a student. And there basically were kind of, like, two schools around entrepreneurship in Middlebury. There was a guy named Michael Cladone who was, like, professor who created an entrepreneur club who was an economics teacher who like loved fostered and, and supported um, entrepreneurship and then there was definitely a, um, a component within the, the college that definitely did not right and so my business um, idea that led to Union Street Media started out with uh, a website called midkid.com and so if you go to Middlebury you're sort of a midkid and uh, what we did, and this was in the fall of 99, is I created a uh, sort of a five-page write-up on what I thought MidKid would be. And at the time, like, the college website was terrible, right? And so what I wanted was a website that was really sort of, as we said, for students, by students. And it was a place where you could read course evaluations. And there was a local business directory of all the businesses in town. Um, and additionally, there was just information and links and stuff that was easy to find. And again, this was like the very, very early days of the internet, right? So I created, I wrote this five-page write-up, and I brought it to, um, you know, one member of the administration, and I handed it to this guy. And, you know, I set up the meeting, like, you know, in advance and tried to, you know, sort of be very respectful, but we were going to pursue this either way. And what I was trying to figure out, and I knew so little about the internet and how it worked, was whether or not there was a way the college could be involved in this. Like, maybe they could host the website, which, of course, I didn't even understand the concept of what hosting means, right? <laughs> So I go in and I hand the write-up to the person and they basically like look at the first page, the second page, skim the third page, and then literally flick it on the desk, like flick of the wrist, like you throw a Frisbee. Lands on the desk, the guy turns around, reaches back and grabs the handbook and he looks at me and he says, let me tell you why you can't do this. And <laughs> so he's goes through all of these rules and regulations out of the college handbook, which were insane and completely irrelevant because, of course, it's the Internet, right? And yeah. It almost, to a certain extent, showed how little understanding he had at that point about how all of this stuff worked. 
And uh, so I walked out of there, and I called my dad, and he said, well, now you know why you want to be a businessman, not a bureaucrat. Um, and But I will say I was, like, really de dejected by that because I thought I had this, like, great idea for something that was really cool, and I brought it to a person with an influence in the college community who completely shot me down. Uh, and so on my way back, I was kind of going back to my dorm room, and I stopped off in the computer lab, and I ran into a guy named James Akombele Altnega, who is a... a Amazing guy. He was actually born in Kenya. Came to the U.S. on the green card lotto. Um, I mean, his story, that is a story way more interesting and worthwhile listening to than every, anything I will ever tell anybody. But anyway, so I hand this to a Akombele, um, who was the vice president of the student body. And by the way, he only went by Akombele in the same way that, like, you know, Madonna only goes by Madonna. He only had one name, right? So I hand this to Akombele, and he looks through it, and he looks up with a little gleam in his eye, and he says, I think we can have some fun with this. So he went out and actually built the website, midkid.com, and then I was the one who was like marketing it and promoting it. And basically like what we did was we went to all of the small businesses in Middlebury and we said, hey, um, you know, we're building this website. There's all these students that are coming to it. Uh, if you would like, we'll give you a profile on like a page basically on the website where we'll talk about your business as if you're a senior talking to a freshman and to tell the story about why they should come shop at your pizza restaurant or your um, clothing store or anything like that. And so Okumbly built the site, and then I went into town and met with all the business owners. And when I knew I was really on something, I went and met with a guy named Mark Perrin, who was the owner of Green Peppers Pizza. And I come in, and I was like, here's what I propose, and we'll put your pizza menu on this website so students can see it. And he, we charged $140 for the web page, right, which was on midkid.com. And of course, nobody, none of these small businesses even had websites back then, right? So he, um, comes, looks, comes back to me and he says, uh, not only do I want this for my pizza restaurant, but I would also like one for my goat farm. Wow. And that's when I was like, wow, like, we're really onto something here. So, um, I ran through town, got like a bunch of people to sign up, um, humbly built the site. He taught me uh, the very basics of how to update and manage a website through front page. Um, I went on to, um, uh, you know, he and I built the course uh, evaluation directory together. He still had a year left in college when I graduated that February. Um, and I took a week off and like from there went right into, um, you know, building the company that has now become Union Street Media. Uh, and I tried, by the way, to get a Cumberly to come join a year later when he graduated. And after having spent four years in Vermont, <laughs> coming from Kenya, he said, I'm getting as far away from here as I possibly can, and ended up in Tampa, where the climate was much more disappointing. Um, uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, as far as the educational system, like, I mean, that was my experience with it in entrepreneurship. I will say that the culture and tone at Middlebury around entrepreneurship has completely and totally changed since then, um, in large part due to the efforts of uh, Michael Cladon, who is now retired, and the whole um, Digital Bridges program that led into mid-core um, and a bunch of co uh, classes and J-term classes and um, efforts around uh, you know both social entrepreneurship and traditional entrepreneurship. Um, and I also think that the recession had a big thing to do with that because I think what happened was is you had a lot of students who graduated starting in like 2008 who went through a series of years of really bad job market. And I think that when there's fewer opportunities in the job market, it forces people, you know, um, one of my dad's lines is always like, 
you know, uh, what is it? Um, uh, in, you know, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Yes. So um, that was a period that I think really brought out a lot more entrepreneurship because people had less uh, and fewer traditional job prospects. Right. Um, and I think that that um, has changed at least the approach at Middlebury College largely around this and from what I'm reading, like, really throughout the um, academic world. Right. Regarding entrepreneurship. Uh, just quickly out of uh, curiosity, where what's Ocombly doing now? Uh, so Okombele, uh is back in Kenya. Um, uh, he, uh, I mean, th- his story is amazing. He ended up actually um, joining uh, the ROTC in uh, uh, 1998. Um, ended up in Kuwait as a munitions officer for uh, during the Iraq War. He applied to Stanford Business School, got in there from from Kuwait, applied and got in. Went to Stanford for a couple years. Uh, and then wanted to find a um, uh, work in in an industry that could bring that he could bring back to Kenya, um, and so he um, spent some time uh, in Connecticut, worked for a company that did like natural resources import export stuff, and has now since transi- transitioned back to Nairobi. Um, so he's over there, and I saw him. The last time I saw him was actually about the week before my wedding a couple years ago. Um, but we're definitely still regularly in touch. Oh, super. Maybe we'll get him on to our show sometime. Um, that would be a great person to have on the show. <laughs> so um, let's segue into Unicid Media itself. You, you sort of started to get into how it got formed. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, sure. And so also I'm just explain what, what you guys do as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, certainly. So um, why don't I start off with like what Unicid Media is today, and then I'll give you a quick sort of step back into how we got here. Um, so today, uh, Union Street Media is a company that um, develops websites, uh, provides digital marketing services, and works with um, uh, real estate data to help uh, real estate agents and brokers generate online leads from potential buyers and sellers. So in a nutshell, we are a software platform for the real estate industry, uh, and um, we've been doing working with real estate brokers for, oh gosh, I guess like about 14 years. Um, how we got here, uh, starting in um, 99, having created unions, sort of what, what was then the company was called College Extra, uh, we set up websites at different college campuses, um, like midkid.com at Middlebury, we had groovyuv.com at UVM. We got up to about 20 different schools, and at each school we would have a, a student who would be the rep for that campus, and the idea is, is that they would both market the sites um, to students locally, uh, and create kind of a replica of Middlebury. It would be specific and, and branded to each school. Um, what we found was that we were really only as good um, at each school as the rep that was on campus. And of course, that rep turned over annually. And the bigger issue really was is that we weren't really selling advertising on college websites. We were really selling websites. Because most of the people that we were going and talking to, we ended up building their website because, as I said, like they didn't have one. This was like 2001. So um, we sort of like got to the point where we we're like, look, we could build websites for like anybody in Vermont, right? We don't need to be trying to sell websites in like Waterville, Maine, because that's where Colby is, or Hamilton, New York, because that's where Colgate is, right? Or you know, Amherst, Massachusetts, or wherever, right? So we ended up um, sort of shifting into this sort of web development space, and we had built out a content management system to update these these sites versus students could update them, and that at the time was like really innovative because back in like 2001, 2003, right, 
if you wanted to make a change to your site, you had to email your webmaster, right? Who was, um, you know, probably some guy that like lived in a basement and like, you know, wore black all day and like, you know, worked all night, right? I mean, they were just like webmasters were sort of funky dudes. And on top of that, um, the whole problem of content management was even if you had somebody in your office who could actually update your site, you were contingent on them updating it. And of course, it was not cloud-based. It was all like tied to a specific desktop, right? So there's only one computer that you could do it from. So we essentially started building content management-driven websites. And we looked around and we're like, look, we could do this for anybody or we could do it for somebody, right? And so we set up partnerships with a bunch of different um, uh, organizations in Vermont. So we had a partnership with the Vermont um, Bar Association, with the Vermont Lodging and Restaurant Association, and with the Vermont Association of Realtors. And in each of these cases, it was sort of like we weren't just um, we weren't just the president of the hair club for men. We were also, you know, a user, right? You know, that famous ad campaign. <laughs> yeah. So we would, you know, go in and do the website for the association, and then the association would promote us to their members. Um, and so we, at the time, uh, started marketing to bed and breakfast. And even back then, there was already one company who had specialized in websites for bed and breakfast because that was actually travel was one of the first things that really was big for internet research. Um, we, with the Vermont Bar Association, like literally uh, went to their trade show, and I had an uh, I had a member or a lawyer in Vermont walk up to me and said, "You know this internet thing? This thing is totally a fad." Lawyers literally, I mean, of course, the legal industry is still on word perfect, right? So, but not like the demographic that really gravitated towards it. Right. And then the last one, and the one that really hit and that was really successful, obviously, was the Real Estate Association. And that's because we were the first company in Vermont to build what was called integrated IDX websites. So what that means is we took all of the homes that were for sale and in a, in a data feed and put them on all of on, on our client sites. So in the past, you if you wanted to see the homes for sale, you had to go to every individual agent's separate website to see those listings. And instead, now we got a feed, and then we took that feed, and then we put it on the, um, the site. And all of a sudden, you could go to one site. Like, for example, Brian French uh, was one of our original clients, now at Brian French Real Estate. You could go to his website and do a home search and see every home for sale in all of um uh, you know, in Vermont and all of the towns that he covered. And so being the first to do this in Vermont, we had a lot of members of the Vermont Association of Realtors who hopped on board with us. Uh, then in 2006, um, one of our competitors in New Hampshire, a company called Agent Master, was bought by their largest client. Um, and he was a guy named Michael Bean. And so with 60 days notice, Michael Bean fired all of the other companies all of the other real estate companies that were serviced by this company called Agent Master. And so all of a sudden there was like 50 some odd real estate brokerages and agents in New Hampshire who had to scramble to get new websites. And so we came in and picked up uh, about 35 or so of those relationships. And that is when we really sort of like kind of moved in the direction of doing websites for real estate agents. All along, we continued to do um, websites for um, anybody as well, right? And so today, um, we still have a team here that works under the name of USM Interactive that does websites, WordPress websites for you know schools and summer camps. Um, 
but they're staffed separately and um, and are sort of almost like a separate, entirely separate entity within the company. Um, so our focus and our um, efforts in all of our uh, work has been primarily focused on real estate for a number of years. And then starting in about 2009 and then again in 2012, we um, really kind of turned our sort of stick building real estate websites into more of a platform of real, for real estate websites. And, um, and so we've really kind of shifted uh, away from one company that did websites for everybody with a handful of real estate agents to a company that really focuses on the real estate industry. Interesting. Yeah, so it sounds like um, I think the, the MBAs call it a derivative company, where which is like a company that starts a product or an idea that already exists. Uh, but then you look at like Facebook, uh, which was the 10th social networking site and Google, which was like the 13th, uh, search engine. And uh, it seems like with you guys, um, you overcame the challenge of, of being basically the same, but different by coming up with this IDX feed. Was that sort of the moment that made your company what it is today? Um, you know, I would say that sort of, uh, like, my brother who was, um, you know, my longtime business partner, one of his lines that he loves to say, and you'll tell my family loves to um, actually uh, speak in parables um, and <laughs> stories, but uh, one of his lines was that, you know, 80% of life was just showing up, right? And for us, we just really happened to be there at the right time, and I think, like, what entrepreneurship is, is a lot of times it's like finding a niche and filling it, right? And so there was nobody who sort of, uh, stood up and raised their hand when the Vermont Association of Realtors said, hey, um, we have this real need. Um, also, what happened at the time was that the guy who was then the executive director of the um, Vermont Association of Realtors had come up from Florida. And down there, he had seen like the sort of growth of IDX websites. And so this is something that's like happening nationally. It was basically like a, a whole new program for the way by which real estate was going to be shared online. And so he was specifically looking to try to find somebody to help like kind of, you know, take this initiative. And so when we came to him and we sort of, um, you know, said, hey, we'd like to do your website and create this partnership program. He said to us, there's actually a real need for this, and like a lot of our member sites are really insufficient. And so a lot of that was kind of, um, you know, somewhat like making serendipity happen. Uh, you know, we, we were there, and we were hustling, and uh, we found uh, a niche, and we filled it. Wow. Actually, I'm remembering, I read somewhere that uh, success equals an idea multiplied by a team multiplied by execution um, multiplied by product and then multiplied by luck where luck is a, a random number between one and one million and basically you know it it all depends on that uh, random luck yeah. number you know when I was in high school I used to run cross-country and when I was the second fastest kid on the team like I knew we had a problem um, you know and so I've never felt like I woke up in the morning with some like entrepreneurial genius that you know, saw a path and, you know, went on to create a company. Like, a lot of it was hard work and a lot of it was timing. And absolutely, there's a huge component of luck. And I think that that goes back to the saying that I said a couple minutes ago of, like, of making serendipity happen, right? right. And I think that that is a big part of what entrepreneurship is, is that um, you have to create the chance and create the opportunity for something to happen, like, will, that will be, that will make you successful, right? 
Um, and that involves like a willingness to take risks. It involves a willingness to be creative. Um, you know, it involves a, uh, putting certain things in your life first over others, right? And, uh, you know, for me, like, you know, I was not going to accept the paradigm that, um, you know, the only way that you could have a compelling and interesting career in Vermont um, was to, like, go to medical school and become a doctor or to um, get a Ph.D. and become a professor, right? Uh, and I wasn't going to accept the paradigm that the only way you could be successful is to live in, like, you know, a metro area and commute in and out of a city every day uh, to some job that you didn't necessarily love, right? And so I said, like, I want to put myself in a place that I want to be, which is Vermont, but um, I'm going to, like, kind of craft and make my own rules here, which is uh, I believe that there is, like, this, you know, opportunity presented by the Internet to create a company that does something cool and dynamic to have like a, a rewarding career. And, and, and I'd say probably the thing that is one of the most satisfying things to me about having created a company like Union Street Media is to provide that opportunity to other people, right? So you don't have to graduate from college in Vermont and like go down to like New York or Boston or move to San Francisco or something like that anymore to have a meaningful and engaging career, that you can live in Burlington, you can work for some of the incredible um, software companies that we have here in our ecosystem, uh, and like really go on to have like an awesome career in a great place. Right. You don't have to um, trade all of that in uh, to kind of have and do the kind of work that you want to do. Absolutely. Well, that's uh, very inspiring that. Um, now, I guess let's flip the coin on that and uh, look at sort of the, the, the other side of it, which, you know, basically Hollywood romanticizes and glamorizes entrepreneurship. I mean, just think of like the, the social network movie and stuff. Um, what are some of the hard personal realities of, you know, being an entrepreneur and uh, that sure. we might not be privy to? Um, I would say that, it, that, you know, if I were, like, you know, one way to look at it is you're writing, like, a perpetual term paper. Like, it's never done, right? Hmm. Um, and the, when I started this, at the time, like, I didn't realize it, but, like, I was actually writing a thesis uh, uh, about the French role in the Iraqi crisis, and this was the 91-92 Iraqi crisis. And I, like, actually was launching MidKid, which was actually really kind of, like, my thesis, Right. And so one way I think to look at it is, is it's like a perpetual thesis. Like you're basically never done. Um, you have to be willing to, um, like work is not something that you like check at the door. I don't think even for people who go to work that work is something that you check at the door. But it definitely has like a more kind of all-consuming, um, you know, aspect to your life. Because ultimately like uh, when there's a problem, like it will eventually end up on your desk. Um, I would say the other thing is, is that you have to um, be willing to like put other things first in your life um, it, as an entrepreneur that you might not if you had a job, right, in a more traditional sense, meaning like you can't just quit and leave. Like you have responsibility to your employees, you have responsibility to your clients, right? Um, you can't like up and move, right, uh, uh, without like also disrupting some of that stuff too. Now, with certain companies today and the kind of work that they do, that's like more possible than it is, um, than it was, I would say, maybe when, when I started. But you're really like committing to a place and to a life. Um, and that can impact like a whole host of things. Like if you're an entrepreneur and you're 
in love with your company and you're in love with where you live and you meet someone in your life uh, and you fall in love with them and, you know, she doesn't want to live in Vermont, like, then then you've got to pick one or the other, yeah. right? And so I think there's a lot of trade-offs that come with being an entrepreneur that's really kind of like a lifestyle um, and that it's just sort of inherently different in, in a whole host of ways. And, and, and part of, like, launching your own company, and by the way, I don't believe that entrepreneurship has to be a full-time thing. I think some of my favorite entrepreneurs I would actually describe as part-time entrepreneurs who, um, you know, start and launch something and they do it on the side and then maybe at some point they take it, like, full-time. But, uh, you know, the, the greater and deeper you go down the path of entrepreneurship, the more um, you have to make trade-offs in other parts of your life. And I think what's really required before you do that is to really assess what those trade-offs will be and to accept that um, those trade-offs may um, trump um, other things in your life. Like, I never spent, you know, a season out west um, you know, ski bumming, right? Like, it's kind of my unfulfilled need. And a lot of times when I talk to 20-somethings, I'll be like, oh, come on, like, you know, go out west this winter, right? Do it for me, right? You know? Um, but, you know, there's certain things that, like, pass the close, like, uh, as a result of it. And um, I think I was not, like, fully cognizant of that. Um, but I also, by choosing to live in Burlington, put myself in a place that I knew I wanted to be. And, you know, shortly after I graduated Middlebury, um, a guy who I had gone to school with starting in pre-kindergarten all the way through Middlebury uh, looked at me and he said, you know what, you're going to wake up in a few years, you're going to be 40 and you'll still be living in Vermont. And I was like, sounds good to me. And I'm going to be 40 in January. That's great. Um, I was also wondering, you know, one of the biggest questions that I found myself uh thinking about a lot uh, in the few business ventures that I've dabbled in is how, how do you resist the temptation of chasing every dollar that comes your way or should you chase it? You know, I mean, maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way. Um, all right. Well, so first of all, like um, I would say that's one of the hardest things in entrepreneurship. Like, and part of my challenge is you've got to learn how to say no. Right. And I'm like, I'm actually pretty bad at that. Uh, and I think that one of the reasons why, um, for a long time, like, you know, we had, uh, we didn't have as clear direction as we should here was because to that same thing, like, I would, you know, find a deal and I'd bring it back and they'd be like, oh boy, that is a TED special, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so entrepreneurship is as much about saying yes to things as it is about saying no to things. And you really have to, um, hold yourself to that. One of the stories that I love, um, Mike Lane, who is uh, one of the founders of, of, of Dealer.com and a, and a friend of mine and a guy that I have really tremendous respect for, uh, loves to tell the story about how they um, had a couple of different like dealers that they worked with at Dealer.com that did not sell cars. Um, one guy sold RVs, one guy I think sold boats, they had another guy who sold guns, right? Um, and one day they basically decided to just call up a bunch of those guys and fire them all, right? And you think about that from an entrepreneurial standpoint. Like, when you start something up, like, it is like, you know, every dollar counts. I mean, not that it doesn't all count as you, like, get further down the line, but in those early years, like, you are fighting for every last dollar. And 
I think it took a tremendous amount of um, uh, strength for those guys to look at this and say, hey, like we're doing websites for car dealers. We're not doing websites for people that are doing other sorts of like brokerage, right? Um, yeah. You know, yeah. whether it's RVs or guns or whatever, and to call those guys up and say you're fired. Um, and so I think that saying no is a big part of being successful. And so yes, you want to say yes to things, but you really also need to make sure you know what you're um, what you're getting into and what you should say no to as well. Okay, great. Um, so I'm going to ask you a couple of quick fire questions uh, as we start to sure. wrap up here. Um, and if you can just sort of give me quick responses. Um, are you into any kind of sport and uh, what kind of sport are you passionate about? Uh, skiing, big part of why I ended up in Vermont. Um, and in the summer, I love to swim, uh, like swim in the lake. And so um, that's uh, sort of my two things. I used to um, play a lot of tennis, a uh, little bit less now that I have two kids. And uh, also love to ride my bike. All right. And apart from your dad and your uncle, who else is your role model? Oh, I'm sorry. Just to go back on that, it was my dad and my grandfather, actually. Oh, grandfather. Okay. Um, I'm sorry about that. Uh, yeah. And who are some of my kind of entrepreneurial role models? Um, you know, I would say that a guy named Nord Brew, who is the founder of Brewer's Bagels um, in Burlington here, he's someone that I've gotten a lot of um, entrepreneurial advice from. Um, and... Uh, you know, like, I'd say that uh, Liz Robert, who ran Vermont Teddy Bear for a long time and then now has Cherry Bikes, she's also been really helpful. I think part of it is, too, is that as you move through your sort of entrepreneurial path, you identify and find different people who are your mentors in that moment. Um, I mean, at the very beginning, like Dave Bradbury, the president of Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, um, was, like, the guy that probably saved us from, like, you know, <laughs> blowing up at least half a dozen times, right? Yeah. Um, so there's different people for different stages. Um, but you definitely, um, for me, it's, it, it's been broad. And now a guy who's been very helpful to me is uh, Alec Newcomb, who um, obviously played a huge role in uh, my web grocer and is now a successful entrepreneur in his own right. Yeah. Um, which book should I read this fall? Well, I will say that, like, I actually am not, like, a, uh, I'm, I, I'm not a huge reader, um, but I will say a couple that I have read that I like. I'm a big fan of Five Dysfunctions of the Team. If I had to choose one, I would say I would probably put that one first. Okay. And uh, the last one here is, um, do you have any businesses that have failed? Uh, hmm. Thankfully, like, so far, um you know, uh, nothing that I would say has been an outright failure. Um, I mean, certainly there are things that it could have been more successful, and I would say that there were certainly, if you look at, like, what I originally sought out to do, creating websites at college campuses, that definitely, like, didn't work, right? And so we pivoted out of that. Um, but uh, I did it uh, soon enough and had other revenue sources for the company at the time that um, I was able to, you know, move into doing web development, right? So... Um, so, uh, certainly that business model didn't work, but, um, you know, the subsequent ones, ones did. Okay, great. In closing, the, the question that I ask all of my guests, uh, is if you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself? Huh, that's a great one. Um, uh, well, I actually just had that conversation about six 
months ago um, on a personal level with like a bunch of friends from college and we got together. It was 20 years to the day that we had showed up in Middlebury. And so we gave ourselves like, you know, advice that we would have given our 20-year-old self and then we talked about what advice we would give our 40-year-old our, our self when we were 60, right? That stuff is really kind of much more personal in nature. Um, so it's like less applicable to this show, but I would say that um, from a business standpoint, one thing that I um, you know heard early on from uh, Nord Brew was the importance of personality testing, and he was a really big fan of Myers Briggs. Um, we use a tool here uh, called the Predictive Index, and uh, that is something that I wish I had listened more actively to Nord. Nord said to me like earlier in my career, I wish I had understood better kind of how people are hardwired and to put them into positions where they can be successful based on who they are. And um, I heard that at the time, but I didn't take any action on it. And in the last couple years um, with the Predictive Index, we've done a lot more of that. Um, and we've also been working with a, a great um, HR coach named Paul Toth to talk about how to create the kind of environment here where people feel safe, where they feel like they belong, where they feel like they can make a difference and uh, that helps them feel like they can do more, right? And so I would say that really focusing on um, sort of who comes in and how they come in and um, all of the strengths that they bring to your organization and aligning those strengths with the proper role, um, really starting with who the person is, is one area that I wish I had done uh, and spent more focus on um, when, when, I, when I got with getting going with the industry media. Okay, cool. Would you like to share how people can get connected with you or learn more about you and Uno Street Media? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, feel free to uh, anytime to check out our website, UnionStreetMedia.com. Um, my email is Ted at UnionStreetMedia.com. Uh, we also are obviously active on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and whatnot. Um, uh, I have always had um, a pretty steady stream of people come by my office who have said, hey, um, you know, here I am in life and I'm trying to figure out my next move and I'm happy to take those kind of conversations. So uh, it's a little harder for me to schedule it now because <laughs> I've got two kids, but I welcome, um, you know, like if anybody's out there and they're looking for advice or direction, I love that. I really believe in kind of the three stages of life being the learning, the earning, and then the returning, right? If you think of your life kind of in thirds. Uh, and traditionally, I think it was much more you learn, then you earn, and then you return. Um, I believe that that kind of really has melded where you're constantly, today we're lifelong learners. Um, obviously, uh, we all want to be lifelong earners, but I believe that you need to be a lifelong returner. And I've been a big believer in kind of paying it forward for a long time, and that's why I love having those conversations when people are moving to Burlington or maybe starting their own company trying to, you know, figure out, you know, how I can be helpful. Like, everybody has to eat, right? So, you know, grab a sandwich, um, you know, have a cup of coffee and happy to chat. Yeah, that's great. That's that's wonderful. And I really do appreciate uh, you offering that. Um, it's been a real pleasure having you on my show, Ted. And um, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story and your knowledge and your insights. Um, my sincere hope is that somebody or anyone listening uh, can take their own version of a lemonade stand idea 
and use it to grow into a successful business person like yourself and also to have the right acumen to know when to pivot and to take advantage of an opportunity if one opens up and maybe even, you know, meet their own version of Ocumbly who will help them to take a risk that they otherwise might not take. And so Vermont would greatly benefit um, by having more business owners like yourself. And I wish you the best in all your future endeavors. And hopefully one day I might even uh, see maybe a Facebook post or something of you going uh, to become a ski bum, you know, in your later years <laughs> and fulfilling that, uh, that dream. Uh, that, that, thank you. I uh, Yeah, I would look forward to that someday too. And um, thanks for having me on the show. And I really admire the entrepreneurial effort that you're putting into creating this thing. I think it's going to, um, you know, I think it, it, that, that in itself is entrepreneurship. Um, and uh, I enjoyed participating. And with that, we'll wrap up the show. Next time on the podcast On the Shoulders of Giants. We talk to Nathan Hartswick and Natalie Miller, the founders of the Vermont Comedy Club, about running the state's premier comedy club. There are people who I can look at and say, this person kind of created their own thing um, out of what they were good at, and you know now they're, they're making a living at this creative pursuit. You know, not, not the least of which of these examples would be my own mother. And we had a whole family full of entrepreneurs and doers and people who who took the creative pursuit and the skills that they had and turned it into the way they paid their rent. Um, and so it was always like an example presented to me that you can do whatever you want to do. Um, if you want to do something creative, then you just have to, you know, you may have to figure out the way you're going to make a living at that. Um, no one's going to hand you a paycheck for it. I had a teacher in college, or really a, bu a bunch of my teachers in college, had this mantra that if you're going out for auditions and you're not getting the part, you need to create work for yourself. And that's the way that you get on stage and you are sure that you're playing parts that you want to play. Um, you know, if you, if you aren't getting cast in the roles you want, then produce your own show or write your own show or do, you know, create the work for yourself. And so I think that's, that's why I, I think I was inspired to do what we're doing.